cry of our hearts with regard to even the teaching of your word, that the sound of my voice and the echo of my voice in our hearts would be pleasing to you. And so keep me on track biblically, I pray, and keep us together in our thinking and in our affections and establish us now more fully in your word that we might walk pleasing to you and that people might see Christ and exalt him. In his name we pray. Amen. I'd like to take a few minutes to review and uh, confirm what we did last night. So let's open our Bibles to Job 1. I think we need to see the pair of pairs with regard to the word of permission given to Satan and then the word of affirmation from Job that it wasn't ultimately Satan who was in charge. So let's get those two pairs before us. Chapter 1, verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Then he loses all of his cattle and animals and he loses his ten children. And he says, the key verses are verses 21 and 22. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So though Satan was given the power and Satan was an intervening cause, Job says the Lord took away. And then the writer who is inspired said in verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's the first pair. Now, the second pair is to notice in chapter two, verse six. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. And verse seven makes it crystal clear. Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with loathsome sores. But the right interpretation of the ultimate cause is given in verse 10. At the end, shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? So behind the sores in the hand of Satan was a sovereign God who was ordaining this for Job. And then the writer comments again, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So the point, I think, should be clear That yes, there is a Satan, and yes, there is a war, and yes, there are secondary causes, and yes, we should resist him and hate him and fight against him. But when the day is done, we bow and we say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And we say, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord? And shall we not receive calamity, hard times? God's designs are triumphant. Now, let me also say another word by way of uh, introduction to this second session. 
Neil Sellers last night stated the purpose of this place, the cove, by we're here to equip people to lead others to Christ. So I, I reflected on that in relation to the book of Job. How does the book of Job do that? And I thought of three ways that I want to highlight, just so you'll be able to see what we're doing here in relation to the reason that this place exists. Start by asking yourself what winning people to Christ means. Because we sling around phrases like that and we don't stop and reflect on them enough. Evangelism is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. And until that's plain, you will not know what you're winning them to. When I was a junior in college, I didn't have this figured out yet, and I my evangelism aborted because I hit a wall by saying, win them to win them to win them to win them to win them, and all I kept doing is recruiting recruiters, recruiters, to, re, to get recruiters, to get recruiters, and that's a bad way to think about evangelism. I'm recruiting you to be a recruiter of others, to recruit others, and somebody's finally going to raise their hand and says, is there a point? Is there a point? Does it have an end place beyond recruitment? Is there a reason to gather anybody? The answer is God is the reason. He is worthy. He's beautiful. He's glorious. He's satisfying. And our response to that is worship and delight and joy and obedience and trust. And that's the end of evangelism. Evangelism is a temporary stopgap necessary fill-in measure until that happens. Evangelism or missions exists because worship doesn't. Now, if that's a new sentence to you, you haven't read my green book. <laughs> I hear that sentence quoted all over the country. People close the book after the first sentence and start preaching sermons. And that's fine, because that's the point of the book. Missions exist because worship doesn't. So, that's preliminary to the three points I'm about to make about how this fits in to Job. you got to know what evangelism is for. It's getting worshipers for Jesus. It's getting people changed so that they value Jesus more than what they were valuing. Now we start to hear a little bit of Job in here. So how does Job fit in? Number one, you can't witness if you don't stay a believer in the midst of suffering. Only believers witness. Only believers lead people to Christ. You can't lead anybody to Christ if you give up on God because he dealt you a hard hand yesterday. If you come out of yesterday bitter against God, you're not going to lead anybody to Jesus. Therefore, Job is there to put a foundation under evangelism for the sake of worship. Because if you don't stay a believer in the midst of suffering, you won't lead anybody to Jesus. Number two, the cost of missions or evangelism today is high and you will suffer if you do it. 
If you want to lead people to Christ, if you want to placard Jesus in a hostile culture or go to Sudan and do it or Saudi Arabia and do it or Pakistan and do it, India and do it or China and do it, it'll cost you and you'll suffer. And therefore, if we don't have a, a theology of suffering, if we don't have a foundation under our feet, we won't go. We won't pay the price of evangelism and missions. That's number two. Number three. If you don't value God, if you don't come to cherish God more than you cherish health and wealth and prosperity, then you won't be able to commend him to anybody as more valuable than all those things. So you need to come to a place where you love God and cherish God and treasure God and delight in God more than you delight in anything else. And then you will be authentic when you say to somebody, may I commend to you? My Lord. Those are my three justifications for doing Job, Neil. <laughs> I asked to do Job when they invited me to do this a year ago, and they were really gracious to let me do, to let me do Job. All of the Bible is written to help us lead people to Christ because all of the Bible is written for the glory of God. And that's the point of evangelism. Okay. Now. Let's see if I got all my preliminary things said here. Yes, I did. Here's where we're going today. We're going to do 29 chapters today. <laughs> 29 chapters of bad theology. All right. Why does God inspire 29 chapters of bad theology? And you must, you must have a view of inspiration to understand that when you, when you inspire a dialogue between a fool and a wise man, a lot of the inspired words are going to be false. Is that okay? Can you handle that? <laughs> because the point is not the falsehood, it's the end meaning of the conversation. So Jesus can tell a parable between two people, and one of them's doing a bad thing, and one of them's doing a good thing, but the parable makes a true point. But God inspires the whole parable. So you can write a novel that has a true point, say, or a, a short story or a sermon. It's got some dialogue in it. And, and parts of the dialogue say dumb things, all to make a true point. So there's 29 chapters of pretty bad theology here. And what I want to do is try to figure out why it's here. What, what's it here for? What's the point? Why don't we just jump from chapter 2 to 42? I mean, the point's been made. The book, you know the point of the book of Job. Now I could quit, go home, and you'd have it. But there's a lot more here and why we need to figure out. It's one thing, isn't it, in your experience and what you've seen in life. It's one thing to hit a crisis and a tragedy, find remarkably by virtue of the Holy Spirit and His immediate graces to you, that you make it through and then it starts to drag on. And on and on. And what you found strength for in the immediate crisis begins to get weak. I've seen it over and over again in my people. They, they get the awful news of, of cancer or a terrible phone call that someone has died or someone's in the hospital. And, and they rise amazingly to the days, those few days around that immediate thrust of the, of the awful news. But then a week later, not as many people are calling anymore. And 
two weeks later and three weeks later, and then the battle is raging big time as to whether they can hold fast to their faith in the midst of suffering. There, there are analogies of this. Women have lifted cars off of their husbands in the midst of crisis and wept like babies at a hangnail a week later. I mean, it, there, there's, there's crisis. There's, there's crisis that brings forth from us both natural and supernatural things that are remarkable. Soldiers on the, in the battlefield have had their legs blown off by a landmine and run on the stumps of their legs to the foxhole, not even knowing what was going on, and then weep and weep at the pain as the surgeon works on them. It's, what can happen in a moment of crisis is, is phenomenal. There will be grace for your crisis. But then what? Then what? As it goes on and on, and the tragedy moves into weeks and months, and that's what happened for Job. Job did well. Job did well at the beginning. But how long did it last? Any ideas? Let's go to chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, just to give you a glimpse. I'll be jumping all over the place in these chapters, and if you if it helps you to turn there, that's fine. If you just want to jot down verses, that's fine. Or if you want to get the tape and just soak right now and not jot down anything, that's fine. 7-2, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hireling who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness. So there's one clue as to how long this is going to go on. So I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. I don't know how many months, but at least two, probably more. This is going to go on for months for Job. And, and everything in us says, look, he passed the test. He passed the test. Let's get to chapter 42. Why months, Lord? Why months? When many of you feel that. Many of you feel it. James Montgomery Boyce was granted the grace of seven weeks of suffering. And others with liver cancer and other kinds, seven years and longer. There's no one way to live or die in God's kingdom. It's different for everybody. So there's a lot to learn here, evidently. This is not a waste, what's going on here. So let's go back now and get these three friends introduced. These three friends. I put friends in quotes. Job's comforters, they're called, and we always say it with the kind of cluck of our tongue. But they did well for seven days. They didn't say a word, <laughs> which is which is a lesson for us in, in dealing with suffering people. Usually it's too many words if you go to visit a suffering person. Usually too many words, especially for those of us who have answers for everything, right? They don't want your answers in the moment of pain. The answers are needed, but they're needed at the timing of an answer is crucial pastorally. And at the moment of crisis, they, they got it right. So let's start at verse 11 
and just see them get introduced and see how they responded. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to condole with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from afar, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. That's good. That's real good. Weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. And they rent their robes and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. This is their friend. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. So let's do that with people. Sit with them while their suffering is great. And don't preach to them. Well, those were their shining hour hours. And now comes 29 chapters of too much talk. Now, there's an order to these chapters. And I'll just point it out. It does have a significance, and I'll show you a little bit of it. There are three cycles of speeches. Eliphaz speaks, Job answers. Bildad speaks, Job answers. Zophar speaks, Job answers. That's cycle one, chapters four through 14. Cycle two, Eliphaz speaks, Job answers. Bildad speaks, Job answers. Zophar speaks, Job answers. That's cycle two. Chapters 15 through 21. Then there's a third cycle. What's happening is that the speeches are getting shorter because these guys are running out of things to say. Eliphaz speaks, chapter 22, Job answers. Bildad speaks, Job answers. Zophar has nothing to say. There's a reason for why that cycle breaks at the end. It breaks. Bildad's last speech is six verses long. Lutini speech. And Zophar has no more to say. And Job gets the last word. Then comes, now we'll move into this later this evening, but then comes a young man named Elihu in chapters 32 to 37. And he speaks, and then the Lord speaks. 39 to 41, the Lord settles the matter, and then you get a closing chapter of the reversal, finally, and the restoration of his blessing. So that's the order of the book. These 29 chapters, three cycles of speeches between Job and his three and his three friends. And our, our question now is, why all these speeches? Why all this talk? Well, let's walk through it. I think we can do this in the time we have. Chapter three is the explosion of Job's pent up frustration with God's drawing out this suffering longer than he had hoped. And he finally just gives in and curses the day he was born. Verses 1 to 3, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. 
And Job said, let the day perish wherein I was born. Then verse 11, chapter 3. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Why the breasts that I should suck? Then verse 20, look at verse 20, chapter 3. Why is the light given to him that is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not? So Job, Job just can't see any reason for this. It's dragging on. And he says, look, if, if it's like this, if this is the way life is going to be, there was no reason for me to be born except to be tormented. I'm not getting it. And he's, his faith is beginning to waver here, but not give up. And they, they do not like, these friends do not like what Job is saying. And here they're, they're losing this, their pastoral sense of timing. Um, they're very upset with Job and they begin to respond. They begin to respond gently with their theology and then they become brutal with their theology as Job keeps protesting. So let's watch them as they, as they go. There's a principle of justice that's going to emerge here that they're going to assert over and over and over again till they can assert it no more. And we need to see what that is. Let's go to chapter four, verses seven and eight, and we'll see it there. Chapter four, verse seven. Eliphaz. Speaking, think now, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So there's the principle. Trouble comes because of sin. And prosperity by implication comes because of righteousness. Now, Eliphaz states the principle. Pain is a correlation to sin. Now, he's not insensitive to a few other realities. Number one, we're all sinners. Verse 17 of chapter 4. Can mortal man be righteous before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now, that's a question that expects the answer no. So Eliphaz knows we're all sinners. However, he does hold to the principle that extraordinary sin will bring extraordinary suffering. However, he has another softening point in his theology, and it's also true, namely that some suffering is chastisement for the good of God's people. I see that in verse 17 of chapter 5, 17 of 5. Behold, happy is the man whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the chastening of the Almighty. So, in a sense, you can hardly fault the theology of Eliphaz here. It's, it's, there is real sin because of suffering and there is real chastening for our good, and we all do sin, and so 
you can't always correlate sin and suffering perfectly. So Eliphaz is his first speech is not harsh. It's 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 got some balance to it. But when he comes to application to Job, he proves himself to be insensitive and superficial. Those are my two problems with Eliphaz as he begins. Insensitive and superficial. Let's look at why I say that. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Here's the impatient part, I think. He says, but now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. So he's criticizing Job because Job cries out because he wished he couldn't be born. Now, it's been some time. Some time has elapsed here. At least seven days, probably longer, has elapsed. And Job blurts out some words. You know, I didn't write down the the text, but somewhere along in chapter five or six, I think in Job's response, There's a statement about words for the wind. Why do you fault a man because of words for the wind? Um, I don't know where it is. I'll find it and give it to you later. But this is so important in a church. This is important for pastors. This is important for husbands and wives and parents. In life, both in pain and other times, usually it comes to anger. Words are spoken that you should just let be words for the wind. Let the wind blow them away. Don't write them down. Don't bring them back up. Let them go. That was spoken. She didn't mean that. Don't hold her to that. The kid didn't mean it. He loves you. It was a word for the wind. Let it go. If you can't let words go in a church, you're going to die in a church. Many words are spoken in a church that should be blown away by the soonest wind that comes along. Nobody writes them down. Nobody keeps an account. If you keep an account of word wrongs in your ministry or your life, you will become one embittered, small, angry person doing nobody any good. Oh, that God would bless us with forgetfulness about many words spoken about us and about our ministry and about our spouses and about our children. Words for the wind. And I think Eliphaz doesn't understand that. Eliphaz is upset and he says, now it has come to you and you're impatient. Because he just heard these words in chapter 3 about, I wish I weren't born. I think they should have said, let's give him a few days to think about that. you know, Or a few months maybe. You don't need to start preaching to this guy because he blurted out some wish I hadn't been born sentence. Chapter 5, verse 8. Job had said, as for me, I mean, uh, Eliphaz, as for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. Now that's what I regard as the insinuation of superficiality here. Says, I, if I were in your, if I were in your shoes, I would commit my cause to God. Look at verse 18 of chapter 5. 
He wounds, God wounds, but he binds up. He smites, but his hands heal. He'll deliver you from six troubles and in seven there shall no evil touch you. It's going to turn around. But he's criticizing him that he doesn't embrace this. And I think he's doing it too simply, too quickly, too superficially. That's my problem with Eliphaz in his first speech. Job protests, chapter 6, his innocence. Verse 10, chapter 6. I have not denied the words of the Holy One. In other words, you say this is coming because of sin, Eliphaz. I haven't denied his words. He's still the Holy One in my life. Chapter 6, verse 24 Teach me and I'll be silent. Make me understand how I've erred. He's protesting. He's saying, okay, you've you got this principle of justice that says this suffering correlates with big sin. Show me where I've sinned. Show me where I've erred. So that's his response to Eliphaz. Now let's let Bildad say the principle. He's less gentle than Eliphaz and it's going to get less gentle as we go along. We're in chapter 8 now, verses 3 and 4. Does God pervert justice? This is Bildad talking. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? Now watch what he does. This really hurts. This really hurts because he's going to talk about his children. They're dead. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the power of their transgression. So here he takes this principle and he applies it with such pastoral cruelty. To a man who's suffering. When you don't know what those kids were experiencing. You don't know. He doesn't know what the situation was. He doesn't understand the freedom and sovereignty of God. And so he takes this little principle of big sin, big suffering, big righteousness, big prosperity. He applies it to these ten kids, to the dad who is suffering. And he says, they, they committed some huge transgression. That's why this house fell on them. And then he applies it to Job. Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. If you will seek God and make supplication to the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely then he'll rouse himself for you and reward you with a rightful habitation. In other words, the reason this is dragging on the way it is is because there's some hidden sin in your life, Job. If you just repent the way you ought to repent, God would rise up and deliver you. Now, Job is getting tired of this party line. He, he knows this. He doesn't, he thinks this big sin, big suffering, big righteousness, big prosperity. He thinks that little simple way of viewing life is just naive. So in chapter nine, let's let him have a word here. Chapter nine, verses 22 to 24. He thinks this is all out of sync with reality. It is all one. Therefore, I say God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. In other words, I don't buy your principle. God destroys the blameless. God destroys the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? The wicked prosper. The wicked prosper. And the innocent get killed. God's behind it all. Don't tell me your little simple principle of big sin, big pain, 
big righteousness, big prosperity. It doesn't work. All right. Chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Thou to seek out my iniquity and search for my sin. Although thou knowest, I am not guilty. So therefore, the second time he's protesting his innocence. Now, I'm going to admit something here. I, I think Job, before he's done, is going to be pushed so hard, he's going to begin to overstate his own condition. And that's why, in the end, there's going to be some rebuke from God. Job started as a good man. He wasn't punished for his sin. But as he's pressed and pressed, the remnants of the sin that we all had begin to come up. And it's difficult to discern just where Job crosses the line, but I think he will. Whether he does here or not, I'm not sure. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 10. Thou dost seek out my iniquity, search for my sin. Oh, you know I'm not guilty. I, I don't think he's wrong to say that at this point. The way they're talking, you must have some big hidden sin in your life for this thing to drag on the way it is. Your kids must have had some big sin in their life for that to happen to them. I think it's right for Job to say, you search my life. I'm not what you think I am. Now, Zophar, third person in this first cycle, he becomes even more harsh. Chapter 11, Zophar gets a word. He, he doesn't like Job's rebuke of, of claiming to be innocent. And so in verses uh, 14, 15, he says, if iniquity is in your hand, put it away. Let not wickedness dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. So he challenges him. Okay, you say you're innocent, lift it up, and you'll be vindicated by God. So that's what Zophar has to contribute. Now Job, in his response to Zophar, resorts to sarcasm. In verse 3, you see it in chapter 12. These are all commonplaces. Everybody knows what you're saying. Everybody's heard these these things, you see that at the end of verse 3. Your maxims, your proverbs are ashes, verse 12 and 13. Worthless physicians are you all, chapter 13, verse 4. And then, I want God to talk to. I don't want to talk to you. I want to take up my case with God. Chapter 13, verse 3, he says, I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue my case with God. In other words, I'm not getting anywhere with you. Your principles are not working. They're so out of touch with reality. God, I'll enter into a courtroom with God and lay my case before him. Chapter 13, verse 3. And that's the end of cycle one. It's the long cycle because they are getting all their stuff out on the table now and Job is responding. And what happens now in the remaining two cycles is that they get harsher and less credible as they go along. So let's make short work of, of these two cycles. Cycle two, I'll just let each of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have one word. Chapter 15, verse 20. Let's hear the principle again from Eliphaz. 1520. He says, it is the wicked man that writhes in pain. So there it is. The wicked man that rides in pain. Chapter 15, verse 20. Now, how does it sound in the mouth of Bildad? Chapter 18, verse 5. It is the light of the wicked that is put out. 
That's the way Bildad says it. So if your light's being put out, if you're writhing in pain, it's wickedness. And that's the explanation. How does Zophar say it in chapter 20, verse 5? Zophar. The joy of the wicked is short. So it's the same refrain all through this second cycle. The principle, these guys are not bringing anything new to the table. What about cycle three? Well, the last speech of Eliphaz, chapter 22, is brutal. So they've, they've just lost all patience with Job. They've lost all sensitivity. Their, their wooden theology that doesn't, isn't big enough to cope with the ambiguities that Job sees in life is going to be hammered on this guy. So let me read you that in, I think we'll start at verse 5 of chapter 22. Is not your wickedness great? So no questions anymore. He's just nailing him. Is not your wickedness great? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary and you have withheld bread from the hungry. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. There's not a shred of truth in that. That's a lie. He has lost Contact with reality because of a theology that can't hold in the presence of reality. His theology can't handle Job. And therefore he distorts Job. When you got a distorted theology, you're going to hurt people. You're going to distort people. The only way you can handle reality to make it fit your bad theology is to distort reality to fit it in there. So he makes a wicked man out of this man, Job. And we know from Job's testimony and God's testimony, God says, this man was blameless. Don't forget verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1. God says, there's nobody like this man in the East. This is a lie. Verses 5 following in chapter 22 is a lie. It is so preposterous that Bildad can barely make a six-verse contribution in his last cycle as he gets a chance to talk. And Zophar says nothing. You know, they've listened to Eliphaz say what, they, what he just says about Job. And they say, whoa, what more can I say? That's heavy. I didn't. I think they're real nervous inside. This is probably a little too much what he just said there. So if you ask now structurally, the way the book is built, we have uh, three speeches and three responses, three more shorter speeches, br- more brutal speeches, and three responses. And then the most brutal speech of all from Eliphaz, a little teeny one to contribute from Bildad and Zophar. He's gone. So the structure breaks down. I think that is a a poetic or structural way of saying The theology breaks down. The theology of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar breaks down in the end. It started symmetrically. There was some balance in Eliphaz's first speech. There was some symmetry to it. There was some sensitivity to it, some gentleness to it, some querying to it. And it gets more and more brittle, more and more wooden, less and less out of in touch with reality. And then structurally, 
they can't even complete the, the cycle, as it were. So the main point of those 29 chapters, I think, is the principle big sin correlating with big pain and big righteousness correlating with big prosperity won't hold in life. It won't hold in life. Now, let's step back for a moment and view the progress of Job's faith in the midst of this. I said, in one sense, he's moving along and beginning to overstate the case for his own righteousness. I don't, I don't think that's the main thing that's happening. There's some of that. I want to watch Job become a stronger believer because there is some progress here. In chapter 3, Job sank. He cursed the day of his birth. And he said, I don't get it. I wish I were dead. This is dragging out too long. It doesn't make sense. And as they begin to hammer him, he comes back. I'm not what you think I am. I'm not what you think I am. And I don't know about my children, but I'm not what you think I am. Now, does his faith increase or decrease during these 29 chapters of, of hammering? And I want to just point out some, uh, how he's dealing with the issue of death. So I think this is, this is intentional probably in the way the writer structured this. And I think Job moves from weakness to strength in the issue of what's going to become of me ultimately. Let me see if I can point to the places where this becomes more plain. Uh, chapter 7. We hear Job say something about Sheol and death. Chapter 7, verse 9. As a cloud fades and vanishes, so is he who goes down to Sheol, does not come up. So here Job is, is just expressing a common view of those days of, all right, I'm just going to fade out of here and disappear into Sheol, never come up again. There's no future after the grave. And so let me sink into nothingness. Then in chapter 10, still kind of sunk in despair here as he thinks about death. Chapter 10, verses 20 to 22. Let me alone that I may find a little comfort before I go, whence I shall not return to the land of gloom and deep darkness, the land of gloom and chaos where light is as darkness. I'm going to disappear. I'm not going to return. Let me out of here. I still want to, to die. Now, as he goes on, that certainty of death and the hopelessness of nothingness beyond it begins to change, interestingly. Chapter 14, verse 13, he, he cries out, yes, to be released in death. But then he raises a question, not an assertion, but a question. Chapter 14, verse 14, if a man die, shall he live again? That's a little different than I'm going to die and I'm never returning. Something's going on as Job he, he ponders the length of his suffering and he ponders the fact that I could live all my life with these boils and then die. And I think as he ponders that in relation to the, the goodness of a sovereign God, the wheels about life beyond begin to turn and faith begins to dictate something here. If a man die, shall he live again? 
And then you all know where I'm heading. You who know the book of Job. I'm heading to chapter 19. So let's go there. Here's where he comes to in this issue of death. Chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, that's God. I think from our vantage point, it's it's Christ ultimately who redeemed him. But he knew that God would be a Redeemer for him. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. So after my skin has been destroyed, I'm going to see God. I know that my Redeemer lives. I think that's an affirmation of the resurrection. Of his own body. In the presence of his. Redeemer. So he is sure. That he's going to meet God as redeemer. Not just as angry judge. So don't miss that. My God is my redeemer. Not just my angry punishing judge. He's my redeemer. And this boil covered body. Is not the end of the story. When my flesh is destroyed. And then there's some translation. Question about whether you translate. From my flesh, meaning apart from my flesh, I will see God or uh, out of my flesh. I will see God because I'll be raised with new flesh. I'm inclined to think that's probably what it means. So Job's progress of faith, I think, is upward, not downward. And so we're left at the end of this cycle with Job in chapters 26 to 31 magnifying the mysterious power and wisdom of God. And let's just get a glimpse of Job's language now. In Job 26, I mean, yeah, 26, verse 14, 26, 14. Let's let Job help us here with where he is coming out of this. Lo, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? So he he's he's admitting that there's power in God. There's there's an ignorance on his part. I can only see the outskirts of God's ways. His ways are inscrutable and, and beyond understanding. Look at chapter 28, verse 12, where he extols the wisdom of God. Where shall wisdom be found? 28, 12. Where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know the way to it, and it is not found in the land of the living. God understands the way to it. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. This is is humility here. He's been proud at some moments, I think, as he's asserted his his, uh, integrity Perhaps too much, but here is a humble Job saying God knows the place to wisdom. And and then he holds fast to his integrity still. And I'll quote chapter 26, verse 6. I hold fast to my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. 
My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. I'm not going to be driven by these accusers into demeaning God's sanctifying work in my life. So that's my overview. Let's draw out some lessons now from this section of the book. Number one. True theological statements can be false. True theological statements can be false. That is, Eliphaz said many true things. He said many true things. But when he got down to using his truth, it became false. Meaning, he ruined it. He ruined it by a shallow and insensitive use of it. A little learning is a dangerous thing, Alexander Pope said. Drink deep or taste not the Perean spring. Or the biblical way of saying that is, like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. A proverb in the mouth of a fool. So you take a, you take a proverb from the Bible. You put it in the mouth of a fool and he tries to lean on it and the thorn goes up into his hand. He, he's supposed to use it maybe to, to prick a little bit of, 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 of dirt out of somebody's tooth and he sticks it in their eye or in his own eye. It's like Jesus, you know, talking about get the log out of your own eye because then you'll see clearly to get the speck out of somebody else's eye. If you don't get the log out of your eye, just imagine how much damage this log will do as you lean over to do the eye surgery on the other person. You just bang them up, up beside the head. Would you please take that log? Because if you're going to do surgery on my eye, you, you've got a log hanging out of your eye. And it keeps hurting me. And it, it may not be that the, the little eye surgery tool that he had in his hand was a bad tool. But he, he was so insensitive, he was so proud, that your truth becomes falsehood in the application of it. Now, I put a very high premium on theology. I write books about theology, and I teach my people about theology. But here I'm giving you a warning. And some of you non-theologians are so happy to hear it. Uh, and the warning is theology can hurt people as well as help people. And you can use true sentences so badly. And so uh, it's dangerous. I, you know, some of us who are teachers, all of us really, let's say all of us who are teachers, whether Sunday school teachers or pastors or whatever, we know that sometimes our students are our worst enemies. I mean, the students who agree with us are our worst enemies because they get a little piece of it and then they go around and hammer somebody with it. You know, I'm a Christian hedonist because John Piper told me that you're supposed to pursue your joy. So bang, 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 bang. And, or he's a Calvinist and God's sovereign. So now go in and split a church over this thing. And, and you say, oh, man, don't they get it? Don't they get it? No, they don't get it. And so it's risky to teach people. It's just risky to teach truth because people get half of it or three-fourths of it. And, and they wreck lives with it or they or they get it in their head and they don't in the heart. I've got I've got guys in my church who have been there for years and they love my theology and I don't think they're born again.
One of them, we had to get a restraining order because he beat his wife. And now they're divorced. He sits there and he takes notes. I mean, have you ever felt powerless as a preacher? I mean, I'm just, I've taken him and I've hit him against the wall. I said, what are you doing? <laughs> just, oh man. And so I, you know, that's going to happen in this group probably. Somebody will go away from, with some true thing they heard here and they've hurt somebody with it. So my first point is, True theological statements, and there are a lot of them in Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I mean, that's why the book is hard to understand. You read those speeches and you say, oh, show that. Why, why, why is that in the mouth of Eliphaz? Why is that in the mouth of Bildad or Zophar? I, I, I believe that. God's just. And he does punish people for their sin. So, huh? But it, it's the balance. It's the sensitivity. It's the bringing theology into accord with the bigger picture of Job who is a good man and is also suffering. So you got to loosen up that little principle now. You can't keep it as tight and wooden and breakable as it was that all sin is owing to wickedness. That's my first point. Second point. Suffering and prosperity are not distributed in the world in proportion to evil and good that a person does. Job is right in 2130 when he says, the wicked are spared in the day of calamity. Chapter 21, verse 30. The wicked are spared in the day of calamity. That's not just an overstatement. That's true. I mean, I look at theologians, for example. My doctor father, Leonard Goppel, at age 62, a godly man in Germany. They needed his moderate voice. He drops dead of a heart attack. And Rudolf Bultmann, destroying faith right and left, lives to be 93 years old. Explain that one, God. There is no explanation on the earth in trying to figure out who lives long, who lives short. Why Ruth Fast in my church, when the most godly, prayful, prayerful older woman dies with six weeks of agony and another carnal person drops dead in their sleep. So easy. Just, you look out on the real world and you just say, these simple little things that Eliphaz, Bildad, and so forth are working with don't work. They just don't work. I could give you a bunch of other verses on that. Number three, we'll wrap it up here real quick. Number three, nevertheless, God still reigns over the affairs of men from the greatest to the smallest. He reigns. Is it not remarkable that Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job never question the sovereignty of God? That's a common ground in this book. That is never questioned. This is not a book disputing about whether God is sovereign. That's a given in this book. Isn't that remarkable? Never does Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar say, you shouldn't be attributing to God these things, or Job say, you shouldn't be attributing to God these things. That's a common ground. That's a given. And for us, it seems to be up for grabs so often. But it wasn't up for grabs in the book of Job. Fourth, There is wisdom behind the apparent arbitrariness of the world, but it is hidden from man. That's why I read 28.12. Where shall wisdom be found? Where's the place of understanding? Man does not know the way to it. And it is not found in the land of the living. 
God understands the way to it and he knows its place. So if you can't figure something out, read this to yourself. It's, it is not at your disposal to figure all this out. God knows the way to it. Some of it he reveals. And then according to Deuteronomy 29, 29, he keeps some things hidden for himself. He keeps a lot hidden for himself. In fact, we see through a glass darkly. And I think the last thing I would say is, therefore, let's hold on to God. Let's hold fast to God. Hold fast to God before your accusers. Hold fast to God before your suffering. Hold fast to God when somebody beats you up with a bad theology or just beats you up with a good theology. Hold fast to God and and let words be for the wind, even from a pastor who may be speechless and yet speak and uh, say things that he shouldn't have said. But pastors here, there aren't many, but some of you, May the Lord give us a special wisdom. And and for those of you who are not pastors and you wonder, can I ever minister to somebody who's in pain? You can, because everybody can sit quietly for seven days. <laughs> and pray and go get water and hand them a cold rag and cry when they're crying. Everybody can do that. And that's the most important thing that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did. When they opened their mouth, everything started going wrong. While they were quiet, they got, they were helpful. Let's pray. Father, theology is important. Your word is important. Love is important. It is more important. And I pray that you would make us loving people toward suffering people. Help us to sit quietly when we should. Help us to speak when they have questions and to speak with tenderness and toughness, not compromising the principles of sovereignty, but holding out precious wisdom and grace, even when it's hidden from our eyes, affirming it. God knows what he's doing. God has his purposes. God loves. Rest in him. Trust him, even when you can't see. Lord, give us that grace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.